This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan. Welcome back to part two of a conversation between my colleague Dr Lucy Hone and Dr Tom Attig, renowned expert on grief. Tom's books include How We Grieve, Relearning the World and The Heart of Grief, Death and the Search for Lasting Love. In today's session, Tom offers advice on what to say to the bereaved, on the value of rituals for grieving, the difference between a grief reaction and a grief response, and how we can develop what Tom calls sorrow-friendly practices. I remember going to funerals where a relative of a friend has died, or a a good friend of a friend has died, um, or one of my wife's friends uh, has died and so on. And I'm meeting people who are grieving. And a lot of students in my classes used to say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. One of the things you can say is, I don't know what to do. and I don't know what to say. (laughs) If that's the truth, that's the best. you, And it might be the best you have to offer. I found that a, a thing that worked for me, and I think it can work for anybody is, you know, I'm here because I know so and so and it's your father who died. Um, I didn't really meet your father, but I know you're really, uh, you are a good friend and so on. Maybe not now because this is busy and it's crowded here and so on. I'd like to call you and ask you to come over or we'll go out and have a drink of, or, or something. I'd like to know more about your dad. I'd like, I'd like you to tell me about your father. Or I'd like you to tell me more about your daughter. I know she was killed in a car crash, but what was she like? Would a grieving person typically say no to that? No. <laughs> they want to want to talk. I remember I had a, a woman come in to class whose daughter died falling off a swing in her backyard. And uh, she was talking about how so many people just got quiet, just dead quiet. They didn't know what to say. So they said nothing, or they even kind of stayed away from her, and so on. And um, one of her neighbors, she told the story of how one of her neighbors called her and said, uh, you know, I know my daughter and your daughter, Mary, played together a lot in the yard, and we'd be out there watching them uh, on the swings and, and so on and so on. And um, I've got some photos of uh, the two girls playing together and so on. And I, I just, I'd like to know more about Mary. Would you like to come over and I could, I could show you the photos. Um, so lovely. Yeah. <laughs> like and a I, bullet. Yeah. And again, it's not rocket science, is it? It's just, it just is that fundamental shift in understanding that most of the bereaved do welcome an opportunity to talk oh, yeah. about those they have lost. All we're aiming to do is just give the bereaved and those um, professionals that help them some tools um, and some shifting the norms of just saying it's fine to do this. You know, you don't have to sever the connection. You can talk about 
the dead and encouraging rituals as well. You know, I think that's yeah. like beautiful work that's emerging around the importance of rituals. And, and it's, of course, again, just as you described earlier, it's that um, where empirical research catches up with practical lived experience. We've all been having rituals for, you know, for thousands of eons of years people have memorialized in different ways not just with a funeral but in all sorts of small um private ways and now luckily we have the empirical research to support the fact that that does support healthy adaptation to loss which helps you reconnect with things that you feel like you you're maybe not as well connected with i've, I've always thought of funerals as having two core or memorial services, body there, body not there. Yeah. One purpose, to be sad together. Um, that's helpful. It's, it feels good to be sad together as opposed to in your lonely little self. Mm-hmm. And to begin the process of harvesting the memories and identifying the legacies and learning how to live together as a family or as a community with the capacity to still love and appreciate and value this life that's now ended and carry that forth, weave that into the web of the web of webs that's your family or your community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and yet also there are so many um, small little rituals. You know, I, I gather flowers, um, you know, greenery from the hedgerows in memory of my friend Sally and um, you know people talk to me about wearing jewelry or even going I was talking to someone recently and they said oh they still have their um, their son has their haircut in the place that the barber that his father went to you know there's just such Uh great small daily practices. Absolutely let me tell you about uh, we're living in social isolation or distancing or physical distancing anyway here. And uh, you guys did a great job in New Zealand. And I'm probably continuing, I'm, I'm guessing, loosening up a bit. But yeah, uh, uh, <clears throat> having funerals or memorial services is very difficult. Here's a story that we learned just uh, yesterday of a friend of a friend kind of thing. Um, the family couldn't have a service. Uh, but they could sort of go and sit on a front porch. The other survivors um, decided that or, or planned and consulted with them, and they really wanted to do it. And the end result was this as a ritual. There was a cavalcade of cars coming to the home, and one by one the cars would stop in front of the house, and they brought a candle, and someone from the house would come and take the candle and put it in like a glass jar, light it, and put it on the lawn. And by the time they were done, there were something like 120 lit candles in the front yard. Not a lot lot of words spoken. Would that be effective? Yeah, so unbelievable and effective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, and, Im- that's imagination. Imagination is one of those inner strengths that can be used to figure out how to deal with this stuff. Right? And, and actually the other um, part, part there is that it, it might not have been in the imagination and creativity of the people very closest to those that have died. But this is where your strength and your support network comes in that somebody close to you will be thinking, hey, I've got a good idea. And so if you're open 
and you have that kind of open dialogue, then then you are you can accept good ideas and then you reap the benefits of it as the bereaved, the close, really closely bereaved later on. Being uh, being hopeful is uh, uh, being open to and eager to find possibilities and live possibilities that you would welcome. And being resourceful is a very hopeful thing as well, because then you can open yourself to the positive suggestions uh, and grace of others who are imaginative and giving to you ways in, in ways in which you uh, never would have thought of it. Next, Tom explained the difference between a grief reaction and a grief response. It's very simple. Grief reaction is the suffering, meaning the brokenness and the sorrow that come unbidden into your lives. The sorrow comes over you. The brokenness happens. Um, Grief reaction is what happens to you when someone dies. Your life falls apart and you feel bad in lots of ways. And you're agitated and you feel it in your bones and you feel it in your mind racing with questions you can't answer. And so on. these questions come to you. You don't go looking for them and create them and so on. And grieving response is what you do with what happens to you when a loss takes place. And ultimately, it is as big as learning how to live in the world again uh, in all dimensions of your life. Uh, So what happens to you and what you do in what you do in engaging with and actively reshaping uh, and living your life uh, with what has happened to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that makes sense a lot. Um, and it was such a useful distinction for me to, to be able to know that I was having these grief reactions and that was the pain in my solar plexus, the, you know, as you say, the, the rumination, um, the exhaustion, all of those things. Um, and you don't have any choice over those. No. In your response, um, there, as you would say, it is that completely um, full of choice. Well, and, and what you, I remember you talking about uh, uh, choosing to change what you can and uh, letting go of not being able to change what you can't change. Mm-hmm. One of the things you can't change is you cannot bulletproof yourself against other rounds of sadness coming over you. Mm-hmm. The world is full of tripwires. That same woman with the three-year-old who died in the backyard Five years later, uh, she says to her husband, uh, let's go to the Indiana sand dunes, which are on on Lake Michigan, uh, and uh, simply enjoy ourselves. So they went. They climbed huge heaps of sand, hundreds of feet, uh, and then they looked out on the lake, and she began to cry. And her husband says, what are you crying about? She said, I just remembered we always wanted to bring Mary here, and now she's not here. What do you want to go then? Shall we leave? You know, controlling husband. Uh, I want to make it better immediately. All right? And uh, she says, no, silly. Just let me cry. Uh, hold me. Put your arms around me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she did, he did that. And then she said, you know, when, I, when I'm done crying, I'll figure out whether I want to stay or not. So a few more minutes of crying, and she dries her eyes, and she looks at him and says, I want to stay. Um, I feel like 
if I enjoy these sand dunes, I'll be doing that as, a, as Mary's representative. That feels good. Yeah, seeing right. them for her. See, yeah, I totally get so, so the reaction was she cried, surprise. She, she hadn't even remembered that they were planning to take her one day. She's, that's, there are going to be those upheavals all through a grieving person's life where they don't, haven't directly anticipated a connection, and then a connection slaps them in the face. So she had her cry. And she wasn't overwhelmed by the tears as she had been early on. She didn't go back to the beginning of her grieving by any means, but sadness is something you will not control. And if you try to control it and make it disappear from your life, you will fail and you'll be unhappy about that on top of everything else. <laughs> um, and I, I remember reading somewhere um, about the, somebody had called it the grief hijack. And, and, and I find that's quite useful because you can just get hijacked by yeah. grief in the most in, in, awkward, in, in, you know, terrible moments. And as you say, it's so much better just to relent um, to well, surrender to it, and I f- find if I do that, it doesn't last that long, you know. Well, and you I'm try like, to control it, you can keep it going choice. for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, and then you have the choice afterwards. I like the fact that she also had that, that she said, let me just do the reaction bit, and then well, I'll she, tell you how, how I want to respond. She moved into response. She moved into response, and she'd learned to do that. Tom shared with us and discussed the value of sitting with and exploring our negative emotions like sorrow and fear. For years now, I've been talking about, and it's featured in the book, um, when you say you can choose what to attend to, and that's a powerful thing. Yea, verily. I agree entirely. Um, Heavy, dark emotions come at us when someone has died. Um, And I think there is a value in those emotions that, can be appreciated, and I've, I've written about what I call sorrow-friendly practices. Uh, and it's sort of sitting with, attending to, uh, you know, focusing your attention on and letting, letting these things speak to you. And an, an analogy that I use is to physical pain and a number of features of physical pain. Sometimes you have a pain, and it's pretty clear that there's nothing much wrong and you kind of let it go for a while and it goes away. And sometimes your elbow or your knee hurts uh, or your belly hurts. And the next day it's still there. And the next day it's hitting you harder and you go to the dock and say, I think there's something wrong with my knee or there's a problem in my belly and I don't understand everything there. I took a couple of antacids. I've been eating pudding and soup for the last couple of days, and I've still got this belly ache. Uh, you are good at attending to this belly ache. Let's attend to it together and figure out if there's something seriously wrong in my belly. All right. Uh, the pain is telling you uh, there's something for you to uh, attend to here. I don't want you to attend to me, the pain, yeah. but it, it's indicating something is troubling. There's a trouble here. Um, if you took um, fear uh, that a grieving person is experiencing and sat with it for a while, they will start filling in fear of, fear of something. Fear doesn't just come. It, it's intentional in the phenomenological sense of the, the term. It's about something. Um, and largely, fear... Uh, comes from uh, 
ego desperation and wanting to control. And anger can be part of that too. But if you attend to these things, you can figure out just what's it fear of and are there ways of mitigating the fear? Or are there ways, are there ways of coaching this person to try to do something that gives them a sense of control where they can control? They've been trying to control over here and they can't and that scares the devil out of them uh, and so on. And sorrow-friendly practices, I think if people meditate on their emotions, if they talk through their emotions with a counselor, if they keep a journal and try to figure out where this is coming from, um, if they do some artwork and maybe a, a good art therapist or just somebody who's skilled with that uh, can help them see something in, in what they're painting or drawing or in the poem that they've written or the short story that they've written. And so lots of techniques here. Even prayer is uh, could, could be such a, uh, um, such a practice and so on. Um, yes, it's possible to just attend to what seem to be what you call the positive emotions uh, and concentrate on doing a lot of that. But you might miss some pretty serious signals uh, from what you call the negative emotions. And I think that just as with physical pains, when you attend to and work on trying to um, massage the part that's causing the pain or find out what's going on in the belly and change the chemistry in the gut or maybe remove an appendix or something like that, um, uh, the pain goes away. The pain lightens up. But if you neglect the pain and it's really attached to something that's seriously problematic, it will get stronger until you attend to it. And I think some negative emotions are like that. And I don't think they're crying for expression. I think they're crying for attention, and just as physical yeah, pain yeah. calls for attention. Yeah, intentional um, attention. Yeah, I, t- I totally yeah. agree. And I think um, it, it, you make a really important point because grief is, of course, a time when we experience so many negative emotions. And oh, they yeah. are useful. You know, the outward crying tells people that you need their help and support right now. Um, and I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, I would always say that all emotions are really important. They're all there to we're guide wired, us. We're wired to have them and yeah. have them alert us. Yeah. So let's pay attention to them. We're, yeah, all I, of I them. Think, um, I've, I've described them this way. Uh, we've got, we know this in the time of pandemic right now, we've got immune systems that fight off physical illnesses or help us, help us to work with the causes of them to mitigate within our own bodies. And we are built as self-healing machines and only really severe things um, make it necessary for us to have someone help us or for us to do something deliberate to uh, um, heal us physically what if we thought of emotions especially the sort of fleet of negative emotions as a kind of psychological immune system that kicks in and starts signaling us Uh, and uh, we can support those emotions give them the attention that they deserve hear them out find some nuance that might be in them uh, and arm ourselves to respond more effectively than if we just try to damp them down. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that that's, that's your thinking, but I'm saying this is a way to maybe talk about those yeah. things. Yeah, to really listen to what they're trying to tell us, just as yeah. you, you say, just as you would with a physical pain. 
Yeah, and I, I think we're made, some of us anyway, it's been my experience that most of the time, uh, my emotional immune system works. Yeah. <laughs> if I pay attention to why am, why am I so upset about this? I'm, yeah. I'm pretty good at sort of getting at it. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of people who have spent their whole lives trying to uh, drown their sorrows, mm. trying to drug away their sorrows, trying to become so physically active that they can't pay attention to these things. Uh, I think there's gems that get lost and dangers that get uh, courted. uh, And and there's value to sitting with negative emotions and not being scared of them. Um, Well, yeah, and if it it helps to be with someone while you're sitting with it, and a lot of people find that that's true, um, that could be one of the primary uses for a counselor who doesn't trot out all kinds of theories, but lets you eventually maybe articulate something about what you're feeling that, you know, I don't think you're seeing that what, what you're saying here is you really, you miss touch. And if there's someone else who could touch you, uh, that you trust and you already have a kind of a touching relationship, maybe you want a little bit more touch from that person. Uh, what, I, what I'm hearing here is that you're very lonely. Well, you can't be with, this person, uh, physically anyway, and if really physical presence of, of a loving other is something that you need, just to go to a ball game or, or uh, go to a concert or go out and have a meal or a cup of coffee or have sit on your porch at least six feet away from you and, and be present with you in that way. <laughs> as much as you can. I, yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, yeah. And I think... Um, the purpose in also discussing positive emotions in the context of bereavement is that they have been so little discussed in the context of bereavement. Um, and that, that's the feedback I get from, um, from clients and people we train when they say to me, oh, is it, it's okay then, is it to laugh? I mean, anyone who works in bereavement knows this, that the bereaved quite often feel bad about laughing. I mean, that's just awful, isn't it? Tom talked about an article he wrote on the pecking order of grieving and who we think is or isn't entitled to be sad. Disenfranchised grief tells some people they shouldn't be sad and then, just as unhelpfully, can also tell others that they shouldn't feel happy or hopeful at this time. It's about how most of the literature on disenfranchised grief is about how Lots of people with certain kinds of losses are sanctioned for feeling bad about something that they shouldn't feel so bad about. God, your son was in prison. A prisoner died. We can't let you grieve. That's disenfranchisement. Or your homosexual lover died. Or your first wife died. Or, 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 or all, all that kind of stuff. And my point in the piece is that most of the literature on disenfranchised grief is about disenfranchising grief reaction. It's inappropriate for you to be feeling that way. Mm-hmm. It's in a, inappropriate for you to be so troubled in that way, so dysfunctional in that way, given the loss that you've experienced, which really isn't much of a loss after all. That's what they usually are writing about. And my, my piece is about how we also disenfranchise grieving response. Mm-hmm. How can you feel hopeful at a time like this? Mm. Um, You'll never be able to love this person again. Get over it. 
well, that's disenfranchising the whole possibility of loving and separation, isn't it? Yeah. So a good part of the second part of the article is about enfranchising hope and enfranchising love, which I think are home territory for you. So much of this field is dominated by thinking about people being victims and helpless uh, and so on. And we have to have a theory uh, and recommendations for counseling and so on that counter the natural tendency toward helplessness in the bereaved, or we won't be offering much that's valuable at all. No, I mean, so that's completely why um, my theory is resilient grieving. And, you know, it's not perfect in the some people don't understand what resilience is and they think it's about hardening up and toughening up and just (laughs) toughing it out. But, um, but it is exactly that is it's about having a strengths based approach to active grief. Huge thanks to Tom Attig for sharing his work with us. His revised theory of grief is an important contribution to the world. He encourages us to stay connected to our lost loved ones, to talk about them, to feel our sorrow and fear, to be aware of what we are still able to do and feel, and to embrace hope and love as we move into this new world. My thanks to both Lucy and Tom for this wonderful conversation. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. You can listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz or on nziwr.co.nz or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. To purchase books or online programs on coping with loss and resilient grieving, go to nziwr.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.